This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tom Keneally, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much. It's great to be back at Better Reading. Yeah, I should say back at Better Reading, shouldn't I? Because you're only here recently for lunch. Yes, you uh, Better Reading put on a great lunch that united uh, older writers with middle-aged writers with young writers. And there are so many wonderful young writers. Um, they don't do the things that used to get you in the papers here, like have fights in hotel lobbies and so on. So uh, they're not as notorious as you could once manage to be, mm. uh, but they're wonderful writers. They're, they're, uh, uh, and it's a matter of rejoicing that uh, to, to an extent, some of them are cancelling each other out. They're so good. They're so good. I think you said something along the lines of this on the day, on the actual day, the diversity was yes. something that, that you have seen. That ch- that's the change you've seen yes. over the years. There, there were a few theories uh, about in in my day of, of cultural want. We wanted books or we thought we wanted books that dealt with Australian identity now, Frank Morehouse was doing that in a very non-bulletin way. I was doing it so that there was an intolerance of foreign material. We'd been swamped with foreign material. And now Australian material was just getting a niche in the, uh, on the shelves of Australia. And uh, there was a feeling that everyone of any talent had to write an Australian book. But our definition of what an Australian book was uh, varied. Mm. Sometimes it was very narrow. I remember, um, and you may not remember this, but I remember a few years ago I was travelling with you and for some reason we, we were at your apartment, we came up to get something and Maybe you were writing. Maybe I was there to drop off a book. Anyway, I can't remember. But you said to me that day, and it has never left me, you said to me that you are working on something on that day where it was historical nonfiction, but you were bringing back the First Nations people that had been written out of history. Yes, well, now, I did something cheeky a few years ago, and it was a book that I didn't get to promote because I had to have a cancer operation, which, thank God, went very well. But the book uh, concerned Paleolithic humans in Australia. Now, we were Paleolithic people too, the Europeans. So I thought that having had hunter-gatherer ancestors on the plains of Asia or wherever the 
Celts decided to be at that stage, I was qualified to write about the the old hunter-gatherer tradition and how thoroughly we had left that behind. So by the, the time we settled Australia, we had nothing but contempt for nomads mm. and we have uh, nothing but cultural contempt for the proposition that the nomads can produce something mm. of imponderable value that we haven't even thought of. Oh, exactly. That's beyond our imagination. Mm. And um, it's great that we're now getting to the point where we're beginning to explore these things. But I wanted to write about a man living in the Riviera of Australia uh, on the Willandra Lakes in western New South Wales 42,000 years ago. The man that Jim Bowler, the the scholar, found and called Mungo Man, a complete skeleton, the first, the earliest case of a decorated man, mm. of a ritual, ritually buried human mm. that we have on earth. Mm. Now, this is so... We don't have so many cultural triumphs that we can mm. sniff at Mungo. And I thought when it, it really came to me, when Mungo <coughs> Man was uh, dying 42,000 years ago, he thought Australia was old. Mm. He thought his society was old. Mm. He thought um, that the earth was fragile enough still to be maintained by ritual mm. and by song. And... It was a small price to pay for living in Protein Central, which he would have lived in because of the giant marsupials of Australia. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to go through the trouble our ancestors did in Central Asia mm-hmm. and ward off saber-toothed tigers mm-hmm. to get a whack at a deprototon, two and a half ton of vegetarian protein on the hoof, easy to hunt. Uh, So uh, he travelled only for the reasons that we travel, to exchange knowledge, to meet people for education and trade and enlightenment. Mm. Uh, He wasn't a nomad in the sense that we think of desert nomads now. Mm. He lived... Mm. Do you know, I just want to touch on this before. I haven't even done introduced you, but I will in a minute, and then we're going to talk about Fanatic Heart. But I just want to say I, I feel so disappointed that it's taken us this many years to get the uh, uh, First Nations flag on the Harbour Bridge in New South Wales. I feel a deep sadness about that, that it's taken this long for that to happen. However, when I was just recently, I was up north and I was driving home because you don't see it often because you're driving. You don't can't take the time or look up and, and see the flag. But anyway, there was roadworks. So there was quite a lot of traffic and I was, I was stuck in traffic approaching the bridge. So from where I was, I could see the flag. I could see. Yeah. And do you know the warmth and happiness that that filled me with? I got goosebumps when I saw it. Yes, it is. Uh, it's that, isn't the it? The two inheritances. You can't get... I mean, what what we've got to realise, we can't get legitimacy by denying the legitimacy of the Aboriginal claim. Exactly. To Australia. Yeah. To Australia. And when we do that, 
we will be legitimised ourselves. We'll why, no longer why are be... we finding it so hard to do that? Oh, mongrelism. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, we are a narky crowd mm, too. Mm. We are an open-handed crowd and we have many examples of that mm. in the, in, throughout our suburbs and towns. But the narcs, the Australian narcs, the deniers, are world champions. And the people who have kept this immigration, this anti-boat people immigration system going are just narcs. Dreadful. They are... They're dreadful. They, Don't even get me they started. They are world champion I deniers. Know. They are. Now, Tom Keneally is one of Australia's most awarded and beloved authors and a true national treasure. Since he began writing in 1964, do you know that was the year I was born, Tom? He was, Gee. yeah, yeah. He has written countless works of fiction and non-fiction, including Schindler's Ark, winner of the Booker Prize, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith and The People's Train. He has also won the Miles Franklin Award, the Los Angeles Times Prize, the Mondello International Prize, and he has been made a literary lion of the New York Public Library. He recently won the ARA Historical Prize for his novel Corporal Hitler's Pistol. His latest novel, Fanatic Heart, is a retelling of the life and exploits of Irish patriot John Mitchell with a particular focus on his time in exile on Van Diemen's land. I mean, it is an accolade of, of, of work, if you like. Um, so prolific and consistently good writing. And I don't know if I've ever told you this, but many years ago I met Michael Parkinson. Yes. And he said to me, I don't know if Australia knows that Tom Keneally is the greatest writer of all time. That's what he said to me. Jeez. Yeah, he did. Yes. <laughs> uh, this. Would you write that out and I'll show it to my wife? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that for you. get a bit more point. respect. <laughs> I'll do that for you after the podcast. <laughs> now, tell me, tell me about, I want to, before we start talking about Fanatic Heart, I want to talk about your career and how, how many books are we up to? Do we know? Um, we're about, we're over 60. We're over 60. Yes. Okay. And if you started writing in 1964, that's more than a book a year, isn't it? Mm. Mm. I, I suppose it. It is, yeah. Mm. I'm about a year a book man. Mm -hmm. But uh, you must have taken two years off. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, oh, no, you must have. No, that's wrong. Two in the one year. Two yes. in the one year. <laughs> I, I'm lucky. I, I couldn't stand taking longer, but I also need, uh, having neglected to be born into a traditionally uh, ancestrally rich family, I also needed to produce around about a, a book a year, a book every 18 months, uh, to make a living, which was very much my uh, ambition. I was told by every bookseller in Sydney that it was impossible mm. to make a living as an Australian unless you happened to move overseas like Neville Chute and had another job anyhow. Peter Carey, you moved overseas. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, in those days, 
there was an assumption that Australia was such a Philistine place that you couldn't write a novel here. And indeed, Australian writing wasn't as beloved as it is now. Thank, I mean, you've had a role in giving its uh, a place at the Australian half and uh, good on you for that. Thank uh, you, thank, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, the earliest professional writers I met were visiting writers mm. after I got my book mm. accepted, you know. I remember meeting Nicholas Montserrat once, mm. author of The Cruel Sea, who was a real novelist, and uh, that was through the English novelist. The, you occasionally get uh, English publishers, rather, of um, him and, and myself, and... Um, the uh, one one of the great people, the two great people, there's a documentary about to emerge concerning them, George Johnson and Charmian Clift. Charmian, Charmian Clift. Clift. Now, yeah. these were big cultural figures in Australia because they came home just as everyone else was leaving. Mm. They came home to write novels. Mm. I didn't never knew how straightened for cash they were. They, they chiefly came home, I think, because they were looking for cash. They were looking mm. to get a permanent job in the media, which uh, Charmian did. And they were important examples that books could be written in Australia. We weren't sure that this was the truth in my generation. No. Because all the poetry we studied in the leaving certificate, as it was whimsically known. And you're at St Pat's at yes. Strathfield, yeah. Uh, it was all, it ended at, at Tennyson. Yeah. So there hadn't been any poets since Tennyson. There hadn't been any novelists since Hardy. And there was nothing Australian in any of this material. Mm. So could the people who lived amongst Waratahs and Banksias and Flannel Flowers... Uh, produce, were they entitled to produce a, a book or did they have to come from within that northern tradition? Mm. That's what we seriously thought mm. at that stage in the mid-60s. Mm. So the craft of letters was a very important... I was involved instinctively in trying to set myself up as a writer by pursuing the craft of letters by writing a book that could be published in a number of territories. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
When you wrote um, Schindler's Ark, would you say that that was the breakthrough book? I mean, in terms of financially as well. Oh, well, it certainly was, but there were others that had been shortlisted for the book at two, including the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. But Schindler's Ark was uncharacteristic, but not as uncharacteristic as all that. What fed into Schindler's... This is... This is why you can't have too narrow a precept about what is an Australian book. Is Hannah Kent's book on Iceland an Burial Australian book? Burial rights. It is. Yeah. It is an Australian book. It wouldn't have been considered in the narrow-minded 60s to be in this because it didn't have any shearers and, mm. uh, or, or any anti-war demonstrators from Balmain in it. Mm. So I was very much influenced by my Australian experience, I realised, in writing Schindler, in that my father had been a World War II soldier in North Africa and he sent me back Australian Comforts Fund boxes that would arrive at least once a month, cake tins, Mm -hmm. full of Nazi and fascist memorabilia. Oh, wow. uh, Fascist or... Africa Corps, when Rommel brought his Africa Corps in. So uh, I had loot, Nazi loot, Mm -hmm. every month or so. And I could, I mean, one week he sent me a flare pistol from Adam Halfer, Mm -hmm. from the battlefield at Adam Halfer. Wow. uh, Which is the battle just before uh, El Alamein, which was the Stalingrad of Africa. Um, am I and, right? Am I and, right? And so, uh, so you yeah. know, all that was with me too. Yes, yes. The because puzzling it, about the Nazis. Well, um, you know, I was just talking earlier to an Australian writer that we can all, um, if I ask three writers to write a book about, you know, John married Jane, each of those books would be completely uh, yeah. different because, that you know, you bring your life John experience. Be, John would be an African in one of them. There you go. Jane would be Lebanese. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. I'll and take pushy. that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, I don't know where you got pushy from, but anyway, um, I want no, to go back to Schindler's Art because... I'm sorry, that was a sexist, patriarchal remark. Sure, no, that's fine. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, I think uh, many people think that. But anyway, uh, Schindler's Ark, I have a memory of this and you telling me this, but I might be wrong. Is it that you were in New York at one point and you went in and you met a shoemaker? Or, uh, tell me the in story. In Beverly Hills. Right, okay. Uh, so in it's an in ordinary part of Beverly Hills, I bought a briefcase one day. In LA, I'd right. been to a festival of Australian films in Italy including the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, and uh, my briefcase had come unstuck. And I met this extraordinary fellow called Leopold Pfefferberg, who was married, fortunately, to a much more restrained, far less off-the-cuff sort of bloke than Poldek was. Poldek was... uh, sort of man who could sell refrigerators to Eskimos. Yes. Uh... She was a middle European intellectual who'd been a medical student when she became a member of a ghetto. Right. Uh, Both her parents were physicians. Both of them shot in Lwov. Mm. Uh, She was sent from Lwov to Krakow. She met this 
man who looked like a good bet. He's certainly loud. And he, she married him. So she was in charge of the repair room at this store in Beverly Hills that sold, sold handbags, briefcases, so on. It was called the Handbag Studio. It's a sort of mall, that the sort of store that these days would be inside a mall, mm. wouldn't be in a neighbourhood. And so uh, he told me the Schindler story, basically, while I was waiting for the charges on my MasterCard to be cleared. He sold me a briefcase, but he... Um, he was was an extraordinary man because he just knew he'd lived through an extraordinary story. He'd been a friend to Oscar in the camps and out of them. He'd been particularly a friend out of them and he had helped him get a screenplay written about particularly concerning the second camp and uh, before he died. But Schindler had died in 73 and Poldek, Leopold, had uh, filing cabinets full of Schindleriana, mm. Schindler material that he'd gathered for this screenplay. And, I mean, that's the first day I saw a copy of Schindler's List. Mm. And he was on it. Now... When you actually meet a man close up and you've exchanged pleasantries with him and jokes and so on and he says, he finds out you're a writer and there's been a bit of Jewish stick go on where he says to his the man who also works in the shop, Saul, Saul, didn't I tell you I read a review of this man's book in Newsweek? And Saul says... How should I know what you've read? Yeah. <laughs> that wonderful Jewish yeah. repartee. Yeah, that's, good. Uh, that's half aggressive, actually, between yeah. two men who know each other too well to be insulted. The that um, sort of very much part of the the whimsy and the charm of uh, Leopold, but he. For example, went to Simon and Schuster with me when the film was coming out, and they said, "Oh, we're bringing out a special film edition. We're bringing out thirty thousand hardcovers, which is quite mm. respectable." And mm. and he said, "You're crazy. You'll need three hundred thousand." And he was right. He kept on saying the right thing. He catch cry was an Oscar for Oscar. Mm. So. After Spielberg got bad reviews for The Colour Purple, which I don't understand, I think it's quite a fine movie, and even questionable underpowered reviews for that thing based on the Ballard book and set in Shanghai during the war. Uh, Ballard was a prisoner of the Japanese as a child and it messed up his life. Mm. And you can see why in, in, in this, The Empire of the Sun, mm. very fine movie, but he didn't get credit for them. And so he, he started, he put the Schindler movie on hold and he made films with, uh, as Paul Deck says, little furry animals, mm. made a film called Gremlins for mm. him. And uh, Poldek said, I've just been on to Stephen 
And I've told him you can't win an Academy Award for Little Furry Animals. You can only win an Academy Award for a great story of humanity, person to person, an Oscar for Oscar. (laughs) And that was his war cry. So when Spielberg won two Academy Awards, he comes into the Governor's Ball in California and Poldek and I are there with our wives and Poldek rushes up to him and says, give him, give me this, give me this, takes one of the Oscars off him and says, what did I tell you, what did I tell you? (laughs) And went to bong him on the head. So uh, this war cry of Leopold's, who knew nothing about publishing and nothing about movies, was nonetheless on the money. And he knew he'd lived through an extraordinary story. And there's a story that's not in the movie. And he found his storyteller. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where from. Now, then there's the Jewish thing. I became fascinated by Judaism not because they were Jews in Homebush, but because of a lecturer we had in the bloody Catholic seminary when we're all training to be child molesters. No, (laughs) when we're all training to be priests and we're the the healthy heterosexuals had a tough time of it, let me tell you. And Brian Johns, the future head of the ABC, was a fellow seminarian and former CEO of Penguin Australia, and Eddie Campion, who's he's a great writer, yeah. hi- historian, and a great charmer of people too. We had this lecturer who taught us about the fact that Christ was a Jewish monk, but belonged to the Essenes. And the Essenes had made a stash of their testaments in this cave in the Dead Sea area. Mm. So he was into the Dead Sea Scrolls and the the fact that Christ was uh, an anti-Pharisee. He hated the established Mm. people. Mm. He drove the money lenders out of the temple Mm. after all. Mm. He hated... Uh, and he was very influenced by the Essenes. And you can see it, he brought in a new rite of baptism, which saved everyone's foreskin. But anyhow, uh, the, forgive me, that is a flippant way, but I'm just trying to speak in shorthand. Yes. Uh, and I was fascinated by the fact that very much Christ saw himself as coming with a message for the Jews in particular to Mm. clean up Jewish religion, to make it less institutionalised and less corrupt. And all institutional religion is corrupt, as Mm. we've seen with the Catholic Church. And so when I came to to the question, this professor, Davis was his name, he had imbued in me an astonishment that you could kill Jews in the name of a Jew called Jesue from Galilee, a back country, a Queensland. Yet Christ was a banana bender of the Roman Empire, a Queenslander of the Roman Empire. And this man was not listened to by many Jews and the Jews were therefore permanently to blame 
for not having caved in. Mm. Hence, when I was a kid, we used to say a prayer on Good Friday, let us pray for the conversion of the heretic and perfidious Jews. Heretic and perfidious. Mm. The Pope ultimately wiped that prayer out of Good Friday. But the religion had this underlay of anti-Semitism in it, which wasn't much made of. It, it's a it's a wonder. Most negative, but they screwed us all up on sex instead of uh, the Jewish international conspiracy. Mm. So to me, the idea that the Nazis, on top of that, I was a hillbilly for Australia. Why I why was I amazed what my metropolitan betters in Europe did? to the Jews, they're supposed to be more refined than me, more perceptive than me. They're supposed to be better. You know, mm. they're supposed to read Harding all the time when they're in the pub. Mm. They're supposed to read Goethe and they're supposed to know about Mephistopheles and all the mm. rest of it. So, therefore, my even my colonial status fed into Oscar again. Queenslander, what is Oscar? He's a Sudeten Deutsch. He's from the Queensland of the German Empire. He's from North Moravia in the Czech, uh, Czechoslovak Republic. So he's a marginal man seeing things from marginal places. Mm. And so that's why I would say in a strange way, Having been one degree of separation from the Nazis, I was qualified to write Schindler in a dumb sort of way that I did. Mm. I was just a dumb goy that swan Well, it was life-changing for, for so many people, but particularly yourself. Now, we're almost out of time. I want to talk a little bit about your new book, Fanatic Heart. Beautiful. I mean, just such a... What was I reading the other day? Somebody was saying that the, the reason why they like to read Tom Keneally is he because he gives people heart. He gives historical figures. A oh, that's heart. not, yeah. John Mitchell is fascinating to me because he wasn't your uh, papist shit kicker from the yeah. bogs. He was the he'd been to Trinity College. He was a well educated young man, a lawyer who who fell in love with a magnificent woman. Yeah. Uh, again, a Northern Irish Protestant, and they move to Dublin where he becomes a journalist, and he is considered such a dangerous quantity by the British that they ship him out of Dublin the same day, the very afternoon, he sentenced in the morning, shipped out. The judge who shipped him out was a miserable sod called Lefroy who once had an affair with, or a, a matter of the heart, with Jane Austen. Oh, wow. Okay. She thought he, he, yeah, yeah. he was pretty cute when he was young. Yeah. Uh, thank God she didn't marry the miserable sod. Yeah. Anyhow, he comes to Van Diemen's land. He thinks that the Australian settlers should have made a treaty with the Aboriginals. But when he escapes as one of the most famous men in imprisonment in the world, famous as Kosciuszko was in Poland, and he gets to New York. He decides the trouble with America is capitalism. Mm. 
the fact that capitalists don't take responsibility for their workers and the slaves are better off. So he moves south, he moves first, and that's the change that happens in him. He becomes a, an apologist for the slave system because he says if the capitalists do what they do to free people, what will they do to the slaves? Mm. And he had theological and scientific reasons to believe what he did about the slaves, that they were not capable of self-management. Mm. And on that basis, he sacrifices ultimately, in book two of this series I'm writing, he sacrifices two of his sons to the Confederate Army. Mm. We're out of time, Tom, and uh, that's a shame because I would have liked to have spoken to you some more, but we'll get you back. Tom Keneally, always, always a pleasure. Oh, great to be here and can talk about this book endlessly. So if I live, do have me back. I will. (laughs) If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.